Hello, I'm Tim Swindle, the director of the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, and this is Arizona Science. Today, I'm talking with Mike Warby, the head of the University of Arizona's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Mike, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Tim. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the influenza, the uh, disease that we're going to start thinking about in the next few months. Why do we have to get a flu shot every year? Great question. One of the most annoying uh, things with, with all the vaccines is this repeated trip to the doctor for flu vaccines. Uh, and the reason for that is flu evolves really quickly. Um, and immunity to one flu strain doesn't necessarily give you protection against uh, the next. And why does it evolve so quickly? The virus is in an arms race with the human immune system. So when you or I get flu, uh, our immune system does a very good job of some research and, and development to come up with antibodies that can lock on to the outside of the virus. That gets in the way of the virus entering the cell. And if you have that kind of antibody response, you're protected. Uh, the problem is that sets up very strong selection for those few mutant viruses that arise from time to time that have just enough of a change that those antibodies don't bind. Those are the ones that get in the cell and they'll get you sick. So unlike measles or some of these childhood diseases, having gotten flu once doesn't protect you against the disease the next time it comes around. Compared to measles, um, the protection from a flu vaccine is very, very temporary. Now, in, in my research lately, there have been some interesting clues that there actually might be some long-term, not completely protective, but still quite important responses that do last a lifetime, and, and that's a, an, an area of interest. And now, are these related to the different uh, variants of flu, the H1N1 and the H3N2, all of these sorts of things? So right now, humans have H1N1 and H3N2, we call these seasonal flu strains. They, uh, they circulate around the world uh, and, and cause disease in every corner of the world. Uh, but they're just two of many, many different kinds of flu, most of which you find in non-human reservoirs. So birds, mammals. In 2009, we had a pandemic flu virus jump in from pigs. Uh, and so flu is these two very different stories. There's seasonal flu, which is year by year, uh, takes a big toll on human health. And then every once in a while, there's these wildcard events where a brand new virus that we, the human population as a whole has almost no immunity to jumps in and kind of explodes. Well, now you said almost no immunity, but there is some immunity to some of these strains? This is what I referred to earlier that, that, that's really interesting. So for several years, I've been looking back at some of the big flu pandemics uh, of history. And the big one happened in 1918. Uh, the, sometimes called the Spanish flu uh, pandemic. It killed somewhere between 20 and 50, estimates go as high as 100 million people just at the end of, of World War I. Many more people than were killed in the war. And it's almost this kind of forgotten thing. But some of my research that I published a year ago suggested that the, the people who were most at risk of dying of that 1918 virus were people who as kids had been exposed to a virus that was about as different as you could get from the 1918 virus uh, and still be a flu virus. So some people had some immunity to it, 
but some did not. Is that what you, you're yeah. saying? So you see this very sharp pattern in 1918, um, as opposed to a seasonal flu epidemic where the elderly and, and very young are the most vulnerable, there was this really weird sharp peak of mortality in people that were 28 years old. And then if you were a little older, a little younger, you tended not to see much mortality in those age groups. And we think that that's because those age groups outside of that peak did have some protection, not perfect protection, but enough when you just tally up the cohort as a whole uh, to reduce the number of people that died in, in age groups that had some exposure to something similar. Does the order in which you see these viruses make a difference on whether or not you end up with immunity to them? For these new pandemic viruses that the population has supposedly never seen before, you would think it doesn't. But there's a concept in flu called uh, the doctrine of original antigenic sin, which is one of the best named things in all of science. And what's been noticed is if you're looking within H1 or within H3, the virus that you get first uh, it, it elicits this nice, strong immune response. And then later, maybe 10 years later, let's say you get an H1 virus again, what happens is your immune system kind of recalls the antibodies to the first virus, even though it should be making ones that fit the second one. And sometimes these old antibodies that your immune system remembers don't give you much protection at all. And it's kind of like this... Uh, this pitfall in the way that our immune system reacts to viruses, the same concept might actually apply to brand new viruses, that the first virus that you were exposed to might either set you up uh, for success or failure, depending on whether it's matched to the, the, the new novel virus. So how many different basic types are there? There are 18 or 20 or something H's, but there are fewer basic variants than that? Um, yeah, so, so we name these flu viruses based on the H and the N, and all, the, all that refers to is the proteins that cluster on the outside of the virus, the ones that our immune system can see. Uh, and there are about 17 or 18 different H or hemagglutinin uh, proteins that exist uh, in the wild and in humans. Uh, and that's where most of the action is in terms of uh, the antibody response. Uh, and so although they can combine with different kinds of N uh, proteins, really what you're looking at is, is 17 or 18, of which, again, only two circulate in humans currently. Does that mean that whether you or I are going to die from the next pandemic depends a lot on which year we were born? Well, this is uh, something that came up when I wrote up this paper on the 1918 Spanish flu, which in some ways seems like this esoteric journey back in time to something long past. Uh, it's not just historic because the mechanisms that look like they were at play in 1918, there are some really interesting hints that they're actually at play now. And so uh, some of the listeners may have heard of H5N1 or H7N9. These are viruses uh, that, that exist in birds that have been jumping over one by one, bird to human, bird to human, and they kill a lot of the people that they jump into, like maybe 50% uh, of the people that they jump into, they kill. And these are the things that we're looking at and thinking, is this the next pandemic? Is this virus going to learn how to spread from person to person uh, and carry on that very high mortality? When I was writing up that 1918 Spanish flu paper, I noticed a really interesting pattern that there's a very different age group that is susceptible to each of those viruses. 
Uh, and in fact, that the age group that's susceptible does seem to be the one that was born and exposed first during a time when a virus that's most unlike it was the one that was circulating. And if that turns out to be true, um, I think it's going to change the way we think about flu, which again, we, we've been thinking about it as if you have never seen an H4 virus, because they just exist in birds, then you're a blank slate. But maybe you're not quite a blank slate. Maybe you have some protection because you're exposed to a different number of virus that's still related enough to give you some protection. And it ties into lots of interesting things, universal flu vaccines, for example. Thanks, Mike. This is Tim Swindle, the director of Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, and this has been Arizona Science.